0: Liquid bleach, liquid bleach, Clorox makes clothes bright. But what about these cloudy wine glasses? Add glass cleaner to my cart. Adding Clorox disinfecting bleach to your cart. What? No, for glassware. Clorox can also make glassware sparkle, keep flowers fresh, and remove chocolate, wine, all your usual stains. Rude. Clean anything with the versatile Clorox disinfecting bleach. Discover more hacks at clorox.com learn. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll Podcast on Twitter at Let It cast and check out our website at Let It Roll Podcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Ed Ward and Nate talk about 1969, Woodstock and the invention of the 60s. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today, Ed Ward returns for a discussion of Chapter 5 of his book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964-1977, to The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock. Ed, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here. And uh, this is definitely a Beatles and Stones chapter. This is Chapter 5, Inventing, quote marks, the 60s, end quote marks. What did you mean by that chapter title? Most of the
2: things that people sort of remember from the 60s didn't actually occur then. You know, I mean, Woodstock just barely snuck under the line, and um, a lot of the classic rock moments that people want to ascribe to the the 60s actually happened in the 70s. Also, you know, a lot of the personal history involving um, politics and things like that, that was all 70s stuff.
1: I see, and so this chapter kind of covers the dissolution of one of the big bands on the cover of your book and the semi-dissolution and revival of the other what's going on in the beatles camp around this time
2: they're really tired of it i think they um are just kind of losing enthusiasm for what they're doing as a group the individuals are discovering things that they want to do by themselves as individuals And it's beginning to show up in their music, definitely with the White Album uh, being essentially two LPs worth of solo performances. But really, the Beatles have had it, and um, they're trying to figure out what's next.
1: And Lennon, John Lennon in particular, is cutting his own path. In partnership with Yoko Ono, who first came on the scene for the recording of the White Album. you know, The public didn't know, but on day one of the White Album sessions, John Lennon brings Yoko Ono into the studio, which violated a longstanding Beatle rule against wives and girlfriends being there in the studio. And in 69, he's dropping songs about John and Yoko, the ballad of John and Yoko, and then releases a song called Cold Turkey independently of the Beatles because... Paul and George wouldn't have anything to do with a song about heroin addiction. And then you go, heroin addiction? What is going on with heroin addiction and John Lennon at this time?
2: Yeah, well, he was definitely addicted, and he and Yoko were working on trying to get cleaned. I mean, I, I met them briefly in '69 when Jan Wenner. Had his interview with him, and he guided them through the um, the offices of Rolling Stone. And I looked at them, and I just thought, "Wow, these people are really out of it."
1: So the pinprick pupils and the whole junky bit.
2: Yeah, kind of shuffling walk and unfocused demeanor. It, it really did not look good.
1: Yeah, that's. Very sad to hear, and and I want to talk a little bit about the first solo gig that John Lennon played with his new combo he named the Plastic Ono Band, which was something he threw together basically two days before he flew out to Canada. He managed to get Beatles crony Klaus Forman on bass, Alan White on drums, Eric Clapton on lead guitar, and then he lets Yoko Ono sing quite a few songs on stage. What was the response to Yoko Ono's brand of... Musicality and concept art on the part of rock fans at this festival.
2: The, the fans hated. It. I mean, basically, she wasn't a musical person. Her her whole art before she met John was was conceptual art. You know, where where I remember seeing her at the New York Art Festival selling um, something called Snowball in Kyoto, which was literally. <clears throat> literally a tape recording of um, snow falling in Japan. In other words, there wasn't much on the, on the tape, but you could buy, buy it by the inch.
1: Well, let's hear a little bit of Yoko Ono fronting the Plastic Ono Band at the Live Peace Festival in Toronto. This is a song called Don't Worry Kyoto, Mommy's Only Looking for Her Hand in the Snow. that was Yoko Ono finding the Plastic Ono band for a song dedicated to her daughter Kyoko don't worry Kyoko mommy's only looking for her hand in the snow and here's the thing Ed I love that song I've loved that song since I heard the child molesters doing a cover of it on their late 70s album <laughs> Uh, you know, which was a deliberately offensive slab of punk vinyl. I think it had swastikas on the the inner label. All of the band weren't Nazis. I still like that song to this day, and part of it is I think the Gen X reaction against hippies. Anything that pisses hippies off that much can't be all bad. And <laughs> uh, uh, you know, <laughs> well, but the fan reaction was universally negative. Do you think Lennon was deliberately just trying to destroy his image as cuddly Beetle John? Well, I I think he knew he was doing it and he
2: was not opposed to doing it. Whether he was doing it purposefully or not, I really can't say.
1: But that's the net effect, is is it is it clears the decks in a sense for John. But meanwhile the rest of the band soldiers on and puts their last Recorded album together. It's not the last album they released, but they they put together an album that becomes known as Abbey Road. How did tell us a little bit about that and the and the process of cobbling together song fragments? But Paul McCartney and George Martin kind of make silk purse out of a sow's ear.
2: Yeah, they they really. I mean, it, it was clear that it things were over. It was it was the first Beatles album I listened to that i was massively disappointed in hmm. you know it's just listening to it and go, well that's not very good which is not a reaction that i had ever had before
1: and you know a lot of Beatles fans will argue on that 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 you know it's one of their best-selling albums um much loved particularly the medley on the second side and i think he didn't like come together as a single either and i got a pick a bone there I mean come together to me is one of the late great Beatles era songs with a great arrangement great bass line by Paul smoky electric piano great guitar solo by George Harrison who suddenly emerging as a credible you know guitar hero or at least a very tasteful lead guitarist uh, and you know somehow they managed to slap together the goods and the weird thing about "Come together to me in retrospect was when I found out when the Beatles Sessions book came out that Lennon was saying shoot me at that beginning part of Come Together which certainly takes on an ominous tone in light of later events but meanwhile the Beatles biggest rival the Rolling Stones are dealing with similar dissolution in their ranks what's going on with band founder Brian Jones in
2: 1969 well he is kind of lost in a drug haze he really wasn't contributing much And uh, I think he was kind of upset that the band had been usurped by Jagger and Richards and that they weren't doing rhythm and blues anymore. And uh, he basically just resigned from dealing with the
1: band. But they had to go out to Cotchford Farm, the former home of A.A. Milne, author of Winnie the Pooh and Christopher Robin, or Christopher Robin lived there as well, And they had to fire him, sit down and and fire him. He puts out a press release saying he doesn't see eye to eye about the discs the band's putting out. And three weeks later, he's drowned in a swimming pool. What was the impact on the 60s culture of the death of Brian Jones? Well, you know, he was never
2: beloved the way individual Beatles were. So. It was just perceived as a tragedy and a well what happens next moment but he'd probably been replaced by um
1: um mick taylor from john Mayall's blues breakers yeah Uh, Yeah,
2: and uh, so the band was clearly intending to keep going
1: and keep Uh, going they do first with the massive free concert in hyde park in london that half a million people attended and because it happened a couple days after the death of brian jones it becomes brian's funeral complete with boxes of what were supposed to be white butterflies flying into the sky but instead it was dead butterflies limply floating out of these boxes (laughs) uh as the band puts on one of their worst performances ever audibly out of tune rusty But they get it together for the Tour of America in 1969 and really blaze a trail across the country.
2: Right, and and it was was a a way of saying, we're still alive, I think. But they also had the specter of Woodstock over them, and they felt compelled to do a Woodstock-like event since they had missed the uh, original festival.
1: And they announced that they're going to do a free concert in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park which is something that the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane and other San Francisco bands had done successfully many times but basically because Jagger announced it before they had permission to use the park that's canceled and they have to use a raceway well outside the city at a place called Altamont what happens there
2: well what happened was nobody planned anything um The Grateful Dead induced them to uh, hire the Hells Angels as security, which was not a very good idea. And (laughs) um, the result was a disaster. I mean, it was like every horror fantasy you could have about a rock festival all rolled up into one.
1: Yeah, Uh, poor sanitation, no parking, incredibly violent scenes of the Hells Angels just thrashing people with tool cues. Uh, acid casualties running amok Marty Balin the singer Jefferson Airplane gets punched in the face while he's on stage by a Hell's right. Angel uh, yeah epic disaster and a uh, friend of the show Stanley Booth was there on stage and described it in his book The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones it's just a bone chilling scene and and the sort of hubris that Keith Richards and Mick Jagger had expressed to Booth privately before that like they're both talking hippie utopia we're going to change the world with our music man the kids are going to do this you know as somebody who wasn't there at the time wasn't wasn't i was alive but not cognizant i mean did people really think that kids were going to change the world through rock and roll music and it all came crashing down at altamont or is that a gross oversimplification it's not a gross oversimplification
2: it is an oversimplification but the fact is that there was a lot of hippie cant about, and that was you know you you more or less signed it up uh, you, uh, there because people people really thought there was that there was a new society was being born in the Hay Ashbury although it wasn't, and um, that rock gods from England were some sort of cosmic vibration. You know, it, it really was detached from reality, shall we say.
1: Yeah, and got a brutal uh, reminder of what reality is actually like at the hands of the Hells Angels. And, and a young man named Meredith Hunter died right in front of the stage. But, you know, the thing is, I've talked to people who are at Woodstock. And many of them say it was practically as bad as Altamont. It just didn't have the Hells Angels there thrashing people.
2: Right. Nobody got killed in front of your face at at Woodstock, but people did die um, through drug overdoses and ill health and stuff. So, uh, you know, Woodstock wasn't completely innocent.
1: (laughs) And neither is the record business around this time, and a new phenomenon emerges in record stores with something called the Great White Wonder. What is the Great White Wonder? Well, it it was a bunch
2: of tapes of Bob Dylan that uh, had been recorded, uh, mostly for publishing purposes, but there were songs by Dylan that nobody ever heard. Um, It was some of the basement tape sessions. This was an album somebody cobbled together and then discovered a miracle, which was that if you had a properly mastered tape, you could show up. At a dressing plant with some money and run off some records, which you know, church choirs and school bands and stuff have been doing forever. But um, this was this was a, a different matter, and, and they unleashed the game of, of bootleg records.
1: And the whole record industry has to respond. I mean, how did bands like the Who respond to this wave of bootlegs?
2: Well, the the Who. Made their own bootleg uh, years before Bob Dylan was doing such a thing, or, or Miles Davis. They made their own bootleg with their Live at Leeds album, and uh, they had, it was it had a simulated rubber stand, uh, much like a bootleg would have. And um, you know they they were cashing in on on the bootleg phenomenon. Uh, the product inside was slightly better sounding than a lot of the bootlegs, but you know, it was actually a fake bootleg made by Decca Records.
1: <laughs> and you know, a pretty reasonable tech. How um and then in the aftermath of Brian Jones, the 27 Club is formed a pretty grim history. What was the sort of response among the counterculture and the and the music fans to the deaths, the rapid, quick deaths of Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin. And then about a year later, Jim Morrison, The Doors, dropped dead, too. What was the overall feeling of the time about this? Well, I don't
2: know that there was an overall feeling. It's just like, you know, the gods are disappearing. And, and they're, you know, it's just like, gee, they're mortal, too. You know, and the fact is that when drugs are involved, particularly drugs like heroin and barbiturates, that a lot of people knew they were dangerous and that there was this abuse and fatality potential, uh, for people who were using them.
1: And it clearly caught up with Jimi Hendrix, who, you know, infamously choked on his own vomit after consuming a large amount of wine and lots of pills, and was with some people he didn't know very well, who who weren't able to help him. Well, let's hear some of the stuff that Jimi Hendrix was working on at the time of his death that would come out in dribs and drabs over the next decades. This is Jimi Hendrix's "Dolly Dagger." And that was Jimi hendrix's dolly dagger which would come out on an album called rainbow bridge a few years after his death and then uh in form in the 2000s on a cd that attempted to recreate his lost album first Rays of the new rising sun i believe was the name that he had intended and he was building his own studio at electric ladyland and and but had been kind of lost since he had broken up the experience he did the album with band of gypsies but had been unclear about what direction he wanted to pursue and the next casualty janice joplin was in a similar boat where she had broken up with her band big brother and the holding company had put together a new band the full tilt boogie band put out an album pearl that was how was pearl received at the time
2: well people you know they liked it they were a little angry that big brother was relegated to the sidelines although there were drug problems in, in Big Brother. And let's face it, they weren't a great band, even at their best. So I think some people figured that um, Janice was finally going to get the stardom that she deserved with a more professional backup and you know her manager approving and, and helping with that. So it might be as a solo act to um, really big stardom.
1: And she did achieve big stardom, but unfortunately she OD'd before the release of her version of Chris Christopherson's Me and Bobby McGee, which does reach number one, but it was posthumous and all over for Janis Joplin. And then the third member of our Trinity lasts another year or so, but Jim Morrison, after doing... Two final albums with The Doors, Morrison Hotel an L.A. Woman, enduring indecent exposure trial from some incidents on stage in Miami, a trial for breaking up a plane flight from L.A. to Tucson, I believe, drunken, rowdy misbehavior that crippled The Doors' ability to tour in their last couple of years. And then he goes to Paris with his girlfriend, Pamela. And what happens there?
2: He died. Pamela was really into heroin. She was a toxic individual, and and they were, you know, to the extent that Jim had friends, they were trying to get him to, you know, see what was going on with her and how dangerous her drug habit was.
1: And in the book, you actually have an account of the purchase of the heroin and, and, and how Morrison, and according to the book, you report that Morrison actually snorted some heroin that he had purchased for her but he goes to the bathroom at a bar called the Rock and Roll Circus and dies from snorting heroin in the bathroom well he was pretty
2: drunk I mean heroin is not a good combination at all especially when you're a heavy uh, user of alcohol as Morrison was
1: and then so two friends Alan Elaine Rosnay and Agnes Varda took him home, filled the bathtub with ice water and put him in it and then called the police. But nobody knew what happened. No, no, no. no.
2: They, they were visiting the Parsons and they were in the apartment. It was the bar owner who, um, ah. this guy was drunk and, and led him to the streets of Paris over to his, his apartment, took him upstairs. Uh, and um, the, the friends filled the bathtub with you know cold water and figured you know they would shock him back alive but he was already dead so it didn't happen
1: yeah and it took years and years uh, for this story to come out as late as 1981 or so when the classic tabloid trash bio of Jim Morrison no one gets out of here alive came out they were still you know nobody knew the story had not come out no the nobody died Go ahead. It, it had come
2: out, but not in English. Ah. There was a um, there was a French reporter who put it in a magazine. He was a friend of a friend of mine in Paris, and uh, that's how I found out about it. Uh, he's now dead, but um, my friend knew the whole story, and he he just gave it to me. It was just at the point that I was writing this thing that I heard from a woman who had been a photographer in Austin and was back in Texas from her home in Paris. And she was um, taking care of some family business and wanted to have lunch. So I sat down and I said, you know, I, I heard the story about Jim Morrison, and it turned out she was you know, on the committee that takes care of Morrison's grave. In Père Lachaise. And so I ran the story I'd gotten from my friend past her, and she was completing my sentences. I was saying, Well, there was a bar called, and she said, Yeah, rock and roll circus. I said, It was on the Rue Saint. She goes, Yeah, yeah. And, and so she backed up everything that the, I had heard.
1: Well, it's good to finally have it on the record, you know. Like I was saying, that in the early '80s, the the bio ended with with Morrison might very well be alive, which probably helped him sell paperbacks, but didn't contribute much to scholarship of the period. Um, but that was because there was guy, go ahead. a
2: guy in Florida. There was a guy in Florida who who swore he was Jim Morrison, and that um, he was alive. There was some some you know acid riddled nut, but uh, it really did happen.
1: Uh, it's not surprising, and it and it's a sad bit. And another death that happened around this time was uh, first wave rock and roller Gene Vincent, who sort of symbolizes two other trends that are going on around this time. One is the rock and roll revival, which is sort of triggered, triggered by Sha Na Appearance at Woodstock, which is probably the worst musical crime Jimi Hendrix ever committed, inviting them to the festival. But there's a whole wave of rock and roll revival. And Gene Vincent gets a a contract and ends up doing more of a country rock album with members of the Douglas Sam Quintet. Yeah, Uh, that was a weird
2: record. It it was done through um, uh, Dandelion Records, which was John Peel, the famous underground British disc jockey and um he he found out that Vincent had a bunch of really you know had written a bunch of, of original songs which were terrible 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 and um then Vincent went on tour um with Commander Cody of all people and um was never heard from again well he, he was about to die as it turned out
1: yeah blood to death from alcohol abuse but the country rock thing is actually a big movement at this point like we we've talked about the flying burrito brothers and the birds attempts to popularize country rock unsuccessfully but the grateful dead puts out their most successful uh, albums ever totally eschewing the psychedelic freakout stuff they've been doing on their earlier albums getting away from the long jams of the live dead album puts out two albums of country rock and have their most successful records ever
2: yeah and they also spawned a uh, not exactly a spinoff band but um they had good buddies called the new writers of the purple sage who were a very successful attempt at country rock too so um yeah. Jerry Garcia started playing pedal steel and, uh, you know, yeah, it, it really did. It was it was a thing. Let's put it that way. Commander Cody came out of Ann Arbor, Michigan and, um, on tour near DC, he found an old college friend of mine and, um, he had a band which he was calling Asleep sleep at the wheel. Cody convinced them to move out to California and, um, after a bumpy start, a bunch of bands started appearing, particularly at a bar in Berkeley called The Long Branch. There are all these, you know, people trying to play country music as hippies. Um, whether or not the country audience would accept them or not was, you know, that, there was another, another thing entirely. But they were out there doing it, and they were sincere about their love of country
1: music. And meanwhile, on the East Coast, or the South and East Coast, another combo comes together that sort of picks up the mantle from The Grateful Dead. I'm talking about the Allman Brothers, who, you know, had, Dwayne and Greg had a band called Hourglass in LA in the late 60s that never quite clicked. They break up. Dwayne Allman actually moves to Muscle Shoals, lives in a tent in the parking lot for a while, plays on sessions with Wilson Pickett, does a... Famous cover of "Hey Jude," where Dwayne Allman plays the guitar fills that Paul McCartney infamously didn't want to let George Harrison play on album, and has a pretty strong R&B hit with Wilson Pickett. There, then puts together uh, an interracial combo the, that becomes known as the Allman Brothers Band, signs to Capricorn Records, and really strikes gold at the Fillmore East.
2: Yeah, they they kind of jumped on the jam bandwagon at that point where the the thing is that they were writing original structured songs but they when when they played them on stage they would solo a lot and this became one of their attractions to people who had you know grown up with the grateful dead it was it was something something they were familiar with but it was being done in a new way with a lot of blues and uh, R&B input, you know, via uh, Dwayne and and his brother, um, Greg, they, they they more or less invented what's now known as Southern rock.
1: Yeah. And, and their ability to play and improvise and and deep roots in soul, R&B, jazz and gospel, uh it, it really up the ante i mean michael bloomfield had been a virtuoso guitar player who'd done some big jams but i don't think the rock scene had seen a collection of musicians with that kind of collective ability to improvise uh soundly and i mean the stuff still holds up today and is, has created a whole multiple genres both jam rock and southern rock uh, trace their roots to the almond brothers meanwhile I find, in England, very,
2: I find it very interesting that um that a lot of deadheads are in into the Almond Brothers.
1: You know, it's it's if you're it's if you're looking to drop acid and hear people express themselves, the Almond Brothers pretty much tickle that spot on your funny bone. It it's it's uh you know, I've heard from lots of people that were at the Fillmore East shows or a couple of people that were at the Fillmore East shows and, and you know, pupils were dilated at those shows and, and uh <laughs> people, people were, were digging the, the freak out. And, but meanwhile, in England, there's an attempt to do a sort of back to the roots thing. But it gets tied up with some of the things that are going on as far as hyping bands. And we have one of the biggest record company management hype fiascos ever that affects a band led by a guy named Nick Lowe.
2: Well, yeah, for some reason they named the band after their guitar player, Brinsley Schwartz, who was not a virtuoso, but the main thing was they wanted to play country rock in kind of an English style, and that was definitely what their first album was about, and then somebody got it into their heads that they would have this big debut at the Fillmore East in New York and flew a bunch of press over for it just about everything that could go wrong did go wrong and um, they were held up for a great deal of ridicule ridicule in the British rock press
1: and and never quite recovered although they later did become leaders of the pub rock movement and you know Lowe uh, goes on to have a pretty successful pop career and and had some new wave credibility at the end of the 70s but uh, it's just hard to believe from this retrospect but the idea that flying a bunch of rock critics into one location to see a band play could make your fortune, that had to be like a pretty brief window when that strategy had any chance of working.
2: Yeah, well, it was at a point when nobody knew what the next big thing was, you know. The, the stones had been crippled, the Beatles were gone. So anything went really, which is, uh, if nothing else, that, that sounds like the 60s
1: and the Beatles being gone we hadn't quite got to the breakup what what happened what were the final precipitating steps that led to the breakup of the Beatles and the death of the 60s as some remember it
2: well the, the first was their, their manager Brian Epstein died um, he was again in a drug fatality he had been taking sleeping pills and um, he fell asleep one day and didn't wake up and um, so that that really harmed them there, there was nobody ready to or able to step into brian's shoes so the idea of management for the beatles became a real big issue because really only brian knew what was going on there
1: and, and could balance the different egos and forces in the band. And they bring in a guy named Alan Klein, or he comes in and, and Klein had rolled up a number of British bands, starting with the Animals, Donovan, uh, worked his way up to the Rolling Stones, and finally gets his hand on the Beatles, or at least three quarters of the Beatles. What was up with that? Well,
2: three of them, well, everybody except Paul McCartney was... Okay with Klein, at least for the moment. But McCartney had met the daughter of a very famous um, entertainment lawyer named uh, uh, Epstein, and she was, her name was um, Linda Eastman. She was a photographer who had some work published in rock magazines, and she met him, I think, it, at the Fillmore East in New York, because she was based in New York, and. Um, He wound up marrying her and thought that her family had a better grip on how to manage a phenomenon like the Beatles than Klein did. Klein's expertise was tax law. That was what he learned from those those British bands that he began with, was um, how British tax law differed from American tax law and how they could be sort of meshed together so that tax, taxes in the United States for British bands were made easier. And he, he had always wanted to put some of his principles to work for the Beatles because they were the biggest British band, but they had a, a real good manager and good, allegedly a good grip on how to manage the huge money that they were making.
1: And he had used that tactic to sort of steal the Stone's catalog. Like he created his own company called Nakerfelds in the U.S., Nankerfelds Inc. versus Nakerfelds Limited that they had in England. And, and, you know, a few years later, they wake up and Alan Klein owns their catalog. And, you know, Paul McCartney takes credit for our, I saved the bloody Beatles' fortune by never saved, signing the deal to agree to be represented by Alan Klein, but that resulted in the breakup of the Beatles and years of lawsuits. What was the mood at the time when McCartney puts out his solo album, including a pretty cutesy pie sort of questionnaire in there that doesn't quite say the Beatles are breaking up, but that was the takeaway, that was the public impression? Well, once once
2: the Beatles were no longer a unit. and all the solo stuff started happening fans got a little nervous about what exactly was going on and sure enough a lot of it um, wasn't that good I mean the the Paul McCartney solo album was really disappointing to a lot of people
1: yeah it had maybe I'm amazed on it but otherwise it was a lot of you know he played every instrument himself and it's a lot of Slight, deliberately slight songs,
2: right? Which was uh, done in the name of simplicity, not you know being as as complex as the Beatles had been.
1: Yeah, and and but also
2: also Paul was a pop fan, and when when the Beatles formed Apple Records, the the record that he brought to the mix was um, those were the days by Mary Hopkin which was very definitely an over-the-top pop phenomenon. And um, that wasn't exactly what the fans were expecting.
1: Yeah, and, and another artist that they signed to Apple Records on the time was James Taylor.
2: Right. And uh, that, that, was, that was interesting. It was, um, he was a veteran of a New York band called The Flying Machine, had spent some time in Boston on the Boston folk scene, and then was in. Um, he was in England trying to get signed by Apple, I believe, and uh, sure enough, he did, and he wound up with one of his songs being more or less plagiarized by uh, George Harrison.
1: Yes, the "Something in the Way She Moves" was Taylor's song, and that's the first line of Harrison's song, which, you know, if you look at. Uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps there's an Everly Brothers song that is uncannily similar to uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps and George Harrison's like one of the few people you can guarantee was listening to the Everly Brothers in 67 68 an enormous Everly Brothers fan and that ultimately comes back to bite him and he ass pretty hard when his solo release My Sweet Lord comes out and is an enormous hit but he gets hit for plagiarizing He's So Fine by the Chiffons
2: Right, which was not a good move because there were unsavory people behind the chiffons as well.
1: Yes. So he, I, what was the judgment on that? I, he, he ultimately lost the case, um, but but because Alan Klein, his former manager, and this this all rolls out in the late sixties, had ended up buying the publishing company that owned he's so fine. After giving George the advice to buy it himself, which George should have taken, um, but because of Klein's manifest conflicts of interest and being Harrison's manager at the time the song was released, and then going around, I believe, um, and I didn't research this for the episode, but I believe that the judge gave a pretty paltry settlement as sort of a punishment to Alan Klein for... Yeah, it was
2: sort of like $10,000 or something, which is...
1: Yeah, but I've always uh, felt, you know, you hear, read the stories of the composition of that song that uh, Delaney Bramlett of uh, Delaney and Bonnie um, was jamming backstage while George Harrison was on tour with Delaney and Bonnie, and George asked him how to write a gospel song, and Delaney started singing and playing what became My Sweet Lord, and, and you know, George didn't cut him in, so George is a big believer in karma, and maybe that... Uh, karma bit him in the ass it's, it's hard to say but the net effect is the Beatles are broken up George Harrison's a huge superstar bigger than either Paul or John there for a while right well he
2: he had the volume he, you know the, My Sweet Lord was was on a, a triple album I, nobody had ever done a triple album as a solo artist before
1: And and two of the Albums, You know, it was two full albums of original songs with a third album of of studio jams, which I don't think have held up well in retrospect, but in the short term, it was a huge seller, incredibly profitable for Apple Records, and sets George off uh, onto a very promising solo career that that doesn't deliver on the promise of that first album, to say the least. but let's wrap up the episode with one last oddity that I should have talked about when you we were talking about the rock and roll revival, but Frank Zappa is breaking up the mother's invention. And one of the last albums he does with them is this weird thing called Ruben and the jets, which is his own sort of response or maybe he was ahead of the crowd in terms of rock and roll revival. What is Ruben and the jets?
2: Uh, actually, um, I can't remember. I think the guy's name is Reuben Salazar. Um, he was, he's a real, you know, was a real rock and roller. But um, it was Zappa's attempt to capture the um, East L.A. Oldies scene, which was a very, I mean, rock and roll had never gone away in East L.A. And there were a lot of, you know, Oldies fans there. And uh, so he he made a fake East L.A. Oldies album uh, is that. I think that album has Memories of, of El Monte on it which is a song that Frank wrote for the Penguins um, one of the many groups that appeared at El Monte Legion Stadium which was a, a big place for those multi-artist Oldies shows and uh, so Zappa thought that um, the Penguins should celebrate this I don't think it was much of a hit. I'm not even sure it was even recorded
1: by them, but uh. it was, and it's on YouTube. So we'll we'll make that our last song snippet of the day. This is the Penguins doing uh, Frank Zappa's "Memories of El Monte." Thinking about you and the
3: love we once knew, and each time I do, it brings back those memories.
1: And that was the Penguins, known for Earth Angel back in the 50s, a doo-wop classic, doing Frank Zappa's Memories of El Monte, which was part of his love of doo-wop which you know you accuse frank's app of many things but you can't accuse him of not being catholic in his tastes he was a big <laughs> fan of doo-wop and uh other things and it's kind of a short chapter so we'll wrap it up here but i wanted to give a little bit of sneak previews of coming attractions because the next chapter gets into what's going on in african-american music with funk jazz fusion and and the second wave of stacks with isaac hayes reinventing himself as a solo artist motown with norman whitfield at the helm of a, a great run of psychedelic singles by the temptation so a lot to look forward next time when edward rejoins us to continue discussing the history of rock and roll volume two 1964 to 1977 the beatles the stones and the rise of classic rock ed always a treat we'll talk yeah to you thanks time. a lot <music>
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Ed Ward will be back to talk about the birth of reggae and the early 70s funk explosion. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964-1977, to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock is published by Flatiron Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.